Hey there, and welcome to another episode of How to Start a Startup by Hyper. On this episode, we actually have an interview that our CEO, Sasha Reid, did with the good folks over at Luna, one of our partners here at Hyper. This is all about how to build an MVP that people actually want to invest in. They cover a range of topics within that, including validation, garnering survey responses, what traction looks like, raising capital, and more. So with that, let's get into the episode. I couldn't be more excited to actually have Sasha in to chat to us about how he helps startups all over the world see some of the opportunities that I've mentioned before. Sasha is the CEO of Hyper, an incredible program that using Sasha's words or maybe Simon Sinek's from last week, um, always starts with why. Um, As you'll see from today, Sasha is extremely approachable. He's easy to talk to and is very open with sharing his expertise. So Sasha, thanks for joining us um, about to share your thoughts and experience on building investable MVPs. No worries. Great to be here. (laughs) So to start off, can you tell us a little bit about Hyper um, and maybe a reason for being? Yeah, sure. So um, Hyper is actually uh, something that myself and uh, two other co-founders came up with about five years ago. Um, before we got into that though, um, I spent about 10 years working for agencies in agency land and I've always wanted to have my own business and my own company and really sort of find a way to make a really big impact in the world. Uh, and I knew that I couldn't really do that as a project manager. So I quit my job crazily enough. My mum told me it was a terrible idea. Uh, I taught myself to code iOS in a cafe for about six months. And after doing that and after exhausting pretty much all of my savings, um, I decided it was a good idea to find work. It's actually pretty easy to do if you jump onto things like Twitter and Facebook. Everyone's looking for an iOS dev. And I did that for around sort of two years, helping other startups launch their startups. And the thing that I would see over and over and over again was, you know, here's a list of requirements. Here's what I want to do. There was no real reflection on what the customer is, what they want, what problem you're solving, how valuable is that? What can you charge? What's the business model? What's your branding? Um, What's sort of that MVP? What things can we do with that? All that sort of stuff. And um, and after seeing sort of uh, most of those launched and launched to really no one and really kind of go nowhere, unfortunately, I knew there had to be another way. Someone was doing something wrong. The industry was doing something wrong. And uh, I was fortunate enough to find two other people that shared that same problem about th- uh, about five years ago, um, Tom and Sam. Uh, and since then, we've been um, launching Hyper, which is essentially, as you mentioned before, a really early stage incubator, but one that doesn't just focus on sort of the education or network. We actually focus on the strategy and the execution of that idea as well. So trying to be sort of more full service at the very start. I love that. I love that. And you've worked, um, you know, you have some pretty high profile um, names to um, Hyper's alumni from your um, incubator program. One of them, we've got, a, we've got a whole heap, but one of them I want to talk about um, is Sheba. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about the story for those who don't know what Shiba is um, and how you kind of work with the founder to bring that idea to life? <clears throat> yeah, sure. So, uh, <laughs> so Shiba, Shiba for me is a really, a really interesting one. Um, we met George about three years ago, I think. Uh, and it was just a referral from one of our friends. And when he pitched the idea to me, I didn't know if it was, he was serious or not. But after meeting George and anyone that's met George, she's a radio personality. Um, she's quite, uh, quite strong and quite, uh, quite forward. But she um uh she sort of sat me down in her lounge room and explained the idea which was essentially uber for only women 
Um, and for me being a, sort of a, a white male, it was really hard for me to understand the specifics of the problem that we, she, she was trying to solve. And, um, and early on, I actually turned her down because I, I, I couldn't provide enough value to her to understand the problem of what she was actually solving. Uh, and she said, sign up for Uber and I promise you within two weeks, you'll, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So I did that. I seriously <laughs> uh, registered my car at Uber, got all my insurance, my contract, everything else done. Uh, and on the very first night I started driving, it was abundantly clear what the problem is that she was trying to solve, something that I was completely oblivious to um, being male. Um, and because of that, um, the very next day I called her and I said, absolutely, I'm like 100% in. Um, and from that experience, every decision that we made was really based around not building a product that's like Uber, but building a product that has safety, security, and the ability to feel safe and feel like um, you don't need to, uh, like a book a spot five meters down the road, five kilometers down the road or whatever it is, um, or, or any uh, sort of feeling uncomfortable when you're actually on a ride with anyone else like that. So designing an experience around that was, I believe what really helped sort of make the impact that she's looking to try and make. Yeah, cool. And you, you focused in on something that I think is really interesting there. Um, and for those who came, who read the description of our event is something that I do want to talk about. Um, well, we know that, you know, you just, you focused in on the problem a little bit and understanding the problem. Um, and we know that intimate knowledge of a problem area sets a really strong foundation for founders to just build new, new products. Why do you think it's so important to actually have that intimate knowledge of the problem area for a founder? Yeah. So like we've seen a lot of people cause we, we meet, I mean, I meet hundreds of people every single month and, um, we, we see this an incredible amount. It's people that look at something over the wall and say, wow, wouldn't it be really cool if this existed? But it's so hard to know the exact problem you're solving, um, the exact, um, cause and effect and cost of that, that problem existing. You have no network or no connections to that particular industry. You don't even know if you're passionate about the industry. I mean, you could see there's a real problem with recycling or garbage collection for cafes and, <laughs> there might be a lot of money in it, but unless you're really passionate about recycling and garbage collection, really there's no point. Um, and so you have to really understand the nuances of that to understand whether or not you're in the right position, whether your idea is right, or whether or not you can actually step in and make that change where potentially a lot of other people have come and failed before. And so when, you, when we talk about knowledge of the problem area, obviously it's important, you know, as we get started, understanding the problem, like, step one, but are there instances where like understanding the problem actually has knock on effects later down the track? Oh yeah, for sure. Like if you, if you understand the problem, that means that every decision you make after that point in time, um, has meaning and has value. And I think, uh, if you've, <laughs> if you've ever seen that movie, uh, with Matt Damon, where he goes to Mars, uh, survival is basically, um, <laughs> a series of making really good decisions. And if you make enough good decisions and you get to go home, it's kind of that similar thing here. Whereas if you make enough good decisions on your journey through a startup, you're potentially going to get to the point where you can achieve success and success for people is so different. It's some people it's raising capital. Some people it's looking like they're a startup or a founder in front of their friends. Some people it's making a massive impact. Some people it's exiting. So intimate knowledge allows you to get to that point in time where you can achieve what you're looking for there. Yeah, cool. And so when we're th focusing in on the problem, uh, how do I actually, what steps do I take to figure out whether a problem is worth solving in the first place? Like what are, what are the things that I have to start thinking about? Um, <laughs> there's, there's generally a process that we go through. So everyone that comes through our incubator, 
Um, we, we have an internal workshop with everyone that's within the business and, and exclude the founder on purpose. And we do this because we, we really want to try and understand without sort of any influence or without anyone sort of guiding the direction of the conversation, like what it is we're actually doing, why we're doing it, what the unit economics of what we're doing is, um, how we're monetizing it, what we can do to market it, what our consumer is, all that sort of stuff. And so mm. for us um, to really understand that and then communicate back, back to the founder is really important. Um, it involves basically a lot of research um, using the tools that you've got for free, uh, whether they're things like uh, Google Analytics or Google Trends to try and find out what's popular, whether this is the right time for you to launch, something like that. Being able to speak to friends, family that are in the industry or potentially part of the problem that you're trying to solve at the moment. And even though those are going to be very biased bits of feedback, um, uh, they do allow you to sort of potentially gleam some sort of insights that might be useful for your investment in time to go a little bit further with things like surveys or questionnaires or focus groups or prototyping or building a landing page or something like that to really get a good understanding of what it is you're trying to solve and how you're solving it. And so when we, when we talk about, you know, understanding, you know, we understand the problem and there's like a few things we want to do, but what do I actually, how do I know if it's worth solving it? How, what should I be proving or disproving to help me arrive at that decision in the first place? Uh, I think it's um, like ultimately at the end of the day, you're building a startup to not only make an impact, but to um, make enough money to make the business sustainable. People aren't really going to invest into a business if there is no way for that business to be economically viable at the end of the day. Um, so I really, you really need to sort of get to the point where um, you can try and find a, a segment or a niche of consumers that are passionate about that idea, finding out about how much um, you can save them by implementing your idea. So, you know, someone, someone wastes $1,000 uh, a month on doing X, Y, Z, and you can solve that for $10 a month. The economics are there. That stands um, pretty strongly. So how do we try and build something around getting access to the right people um, so that they can see those types of benefits and communicate that to them? Um, so for me, that's, that's probably the most important part is like unit economics, finding a real problem, uh, and then finding an audience that can help you validate that. Cool. So on, on finding an audience, this is a, this is someone, something that can be sometimes a bit tough, you know, finding an mm. audience, finding an ideal customer, finding, um, evangelist, whatever, whatever we call them. How do I start to mm. identify like whether a person or a group of people are actually in that ideal target customer area? Uh, so for me, I try and look at the the problem. Um, yeah, the problem that I'm trying to solve. Obviously, the industry that that, that problem is going to be solved within. Uh, and then once once you sort of, um, I guess, understand who who's impacted by that the most, um, then looking at um, uh, what you can possibly do to sort of branch that out. So what are the, what are the areas? What are the networks do people have that um, are associated with that type of demographic or that type of consumer? So if we're looking like one of our, our previous founders um, created a startup called Kabloom, um, and the idea of the idea was that it was trying to teach entrepreneurialism to kids. Um, the idea being that 65% of kids that exit um, the schooling system will be um, employed with jobs that don't exist at the moment. So trying to teach kids to think creatively rather than structured uh, in the structured approach to the schooling system is really important. So because we know that, we know that um, we need to be looking at parents who obviously have kids. And then based on the fact that um, we're looking at parents, where can we try and access a lot of those types of people? What Facebook groups are we looking for? Is it things like after school sports, after school care, um, childcare, babysitting, uh, Facebook groups, um, things like that to try and find a large subset of the demographic that you're specifically going after to both um, advertise to eventually, but to try and validate this initially. And so when we talk about 
that validation piece and, you know, accessing the Facebook groups and seeing, seeing the parents and talking to the parents. I think sometimes the first step of just talking to them can actually be pretty tough. And if I'm super passionate about what I'm doing, I might just launch into telling them about what I want to do. And instead of asking them uh, about the problem, do you have any like tips or like key things that I should be trying to uncover when I'm start chatting to those parents or in those Facebook groups or yeah, just trying to keep the the um, trying to keep the questions as open as possible. Um, generally open ended, not things like you know, would you like the would you like a product that's red or blue because it leads towards either of those two options. Um, and being in person is really hard too because you start to uh, the inflection of what you say is um, a, an indicator and, and changes the response from people the the expected response from people um, when um, compared to something like a survey. So you should always try and do both if possible. Um, but try and keep them open-ended as possible when you're actually physically talking to someone because there's definitely some insights in there that you may not know. You know, how much would you be willing to pay for this? Or it is a very different question to would you pay $10 or $5 for this because you try and anchor that that um, answer in someone's mind. So trying to be as open as possible while in person and doing things like focus groups, but then trying to have some way to unify people's responses through things like questionnaires where you can actually make meaningful assessments um, from them. So 95% of people said that they definitely would use this type of problem, uh, this, this type of solution to solve, you know, problem X, Y, Z. They're the type of metrics that you can actually start to communicate with and make decisions from. And so I think it's so interesting, you know, to think, to start thinking about, okay, I need to start asking open-ended questions and, and really gathering all these data sets about what people are saying and, and mm. how people are saying it, but the, you know, actually recording that and then taking that and, and using it is quite difficult. So the first part of my question is like, how many, like how often and how many? Um, and then the second part is like, do you have a way of like recording that in general? Or do you just say like, you need to, you know, take it on like intuition and, and, and gather that data? Yeah. So, I, uh, a really interesting sort of insight that I had from Hugh from Galileo Ventures last time that you met with him mm-hmm. um, was the way that he looks at customer service and, and feedback. And for him, he just has uh, his notifications on his phone and sees everything that comes through, whether responsible or not, so he can get the heartbeat of what's going on with the product that he launched. Um, the pre-revenue for businesses that haven't even started up, it's obviously very different. You don't get that heartbeat. So for me, it's about... Um, trying to, I guess, survey um, a segment of customers that you found that would be beneficial for your product at meaningful times instead of always. So as soon as you've had the idea, as soon as you've got that spark of, wow, how is no one else doing this? That's the perfect time to try and validate your idea through questionnaires, through interviews, through whatever you need to. Um, once you've got your an understanding about where you should be going, you should try and validate that direction again because the framework in which you set your startup from the, every decision you make from that framework is going to be um, extremely expensive to try and change later on. So <laughs> if you're trying to solve the problem of, you know, on-demand babysitting, once you've got that survey, once you've got that, uh, those responses and you've made some decisions about, we should take payments through the platform, um, we should try and do this, we should try and do that, then revalidate those as much as you can. And then once you've got that, put that into something like a, uh, like a prototype, whether that's a high fidelity prototype, low fidelity prototype, uh, a landing page that has buy now buttons that link to a thank you by coming soon page, um, anything like that to really make sure that what people have said matches up with what they're actually physically doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you've got that, once sort of development's underway, whether that's a co-founder agency, whatever it is from there, 
um, making sure that you're spending the time double checking your approach to marketing and customer acquisition through again through things like surveys. And then once you're live, obviously that that approach that you mentioned is a really interesting one to follow. And so I, I think it's um, it's really cool that you, you you're constantly chatting to people who may or may not be customers, but um, you know drilling drilling down on those like really early conversations where I might speak to a hundred people to validate my idea. I want to be able to also sell to these people at the end of the day, right? Um, mm. Would you say that those people I'm chatting to at those initial stages are my customers or are they really just people helping me validate my customers might be a totally different, might, might be totally different to those people? Uh, I think they're, they're definitely going to be customers and potentially if you can build a relationship through them, through uh, explaining the journey that you're going to. So if someone uh, does a very early survey for you, they enter their email address at the end of the survey, is always really critical. If you give them updates similar to you, we give an update to an investor every month saying, hey, here's what we're doing. We've done some first designs. Here's what they look like. You're allowing people to feel like you're more than just a, a brand or a, you know, a store. You have a personality, you have a meaning, and you have a, a sort of a course of beliefs that they can try and follow and they can be part of. So when you do get to the stage of beta testing, you're going to have people who are passionate enough to give a shit about your idea so that they can give you some realistic feedback when that actually happens. Um, but through all the surveying and everything else that you're doing, you're never going to get an enormous amount of people. You know, we, mm -hmm. we generally say that even through things like Facebook groups where you've got groups of, you know, 40,000 people in a Facebook group, um, which we generally send a lot of surveys to, trying to get 200 responses is really good. And trying to get half of those people to put the email address is also really good. Mm -hmm. um, and you're going to need more than 100 people to launch your product with. So it's really important after that to, um, to use the insights, the information and try and get as many people as possible passionate about your product. Um, but then really start to look at cost-effective growth hacking ways in order to actually start to create distribution channels, partnerships, and, and whatever you need to, um, to launch the idea with. That's so cool. Uh, I, I think I love the idea that, you know, you're, you're just leveraging, you know, you don't necessarily have to spend money to be able to go and do, do all these things. It's just, yep. it's literally sheer grit and research <laughs> to help you, to help you figure out what's out there. Who do I need to speak to and how am I going to access them? Cause I'm sure for you, every startup that you work with is in a totally different industry, totally different focus groups. And you have to really hone in with the founder to actually find what's relevant to them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I've done that for every industry with every idea under the sun. So I feel like for some reason I'm a, I'm a glorified generalist right now. <laughs> I, I think that's, that's a, that's a great place to be <laughs> really. Yeah. And when we're talking about we've, so we've got a problem, we've validated it. We've, we've started to figure out, I guess the, and we, we know that the problem is a real problem and that people experience the problem, which is super, super important. Um, but then I need to build a solution. And I guess that the hard nexus for a lot of founders is that they can validate the problem through research, through reports, things like that. But then actually making sure that you're building the best solution to that problem is a hard nexus to bridge. What kind of validation do you think founders should be doing there to make sure they can, they can cross that bridge? So just in terms of the, like finding out how they're actually solving that, that original mm -hmm. problem. Yep. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so, uh, the, it's it, a lot of it's research, right? Like research on the the market that you're going after. Like, are they uh, so the lower end of the social economic scale or the higher end? How are you branding and marketing that? Um, what are the competitors already doing? Because there will be competitors. What are they doing well? What are they doing bad with? What niche are you focusing on? How can you try and double down and make sure that you understand what they're doing or what you should be doing? Um, there's no sort of one size fits all, and I think founders that that sort of uh, say that, you know, this is a billion dollar idea and it's a, it's an app or a product for everyone. 
um, is in a really bad place um, to start the right deal with. It has to be very niche focused. And if it is niche focused, then that helps clear away all of the, the distractions that you get when it comes to we need to support men, women, young, elderly, needs to be an app and a mobile and everything else like that. If we're just focusing on something very, very specific, um, then it allows us to clear away all of that and just focus on, okay, how are we solving that particular problem for that particular niche? How are we commercializing and how are we proving and going through rapid iterations of um, validation to make sure that what we're doing is correct and how are we trying to change our product to make sure that um, we're sort of um, being very customer-centric and doing exactly what they need us to do. And when we're talking about, I guess, that, that very first product, what we're talking mm. about really is an MVP, right? Uh, yeah. Can you maybe, before we jump into talking about MVPs in general, just quick definition, what is an MVP in your mind and what, like, what, why are we actually using it in the first place? Okay, so minimal viable product is, um, it's the idea of having the very first thing that you can sell to a customer that is still commercially viable, that validates the problem that you're trying to solve at the moment. So if you have, uh, you know, your ambition to be like square payments, for example, uh, maybe you have, uh, you want to be part of the point of sale system, you want to take payments, you want to do reporting, you want to do payroll. It doesn't mean you have to do everything at the very start. They started just with a simple, super simple way to take payments from an iPhone for people who are at a, a market or a stall or something very similar to that. That allowed them to get into the market, get traction, prove the model, um, use investors to help get to that next stage and that next stage and that next stage to the point of where they are at the moment. So what that MVP looks like is really depending on the idea. Um, we, we worked with another company called Magic Mountain, who's based over in the UK. They, uh, they really wanted to try and solve, uh, I guess, people's ability to be obsessive about fitness. Um, and fitness apps have all been done in the past, but this is a really unique angle. Um, it was around trying to leverage the, um, the sort of intrinsic motivators that you get by um, wanting to, by your friends basically forcing you to do something. So if everyone's committed together towards a common goal, how do we motivate each other to get there? And so our MVP was a WhatsApp group or a series of WhatsApp groups where we charged people to get in. We did reports on a weekly basis. Um, we got immediate feedback. We launched within a couple of days and we used all of that information to justify the effort of building an actual product that reflected the features that were working or weren't working. Um, we've also done other products about, um, uh, there was a, a mental health product we're working on um, recently or actually working on recently. I can't get into too much detail, but the unit economics of that was really difficult to do. So instead of building an app or a product, which is eventually where we want to take it, we're focusing on building a chatbot, which is extremely simple, extremely cheap to try and build to get the numbers needed to prove the model to justify the cost of building a, an extended product for that vision. So it's whatever the smallest possible version of your product is that's still commercially viable and that people still want to use. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's great. And I think often founders, um, which is like to the credit of founders around the world is that they're full of ideas and full yeah. of picture thinking, you know? And I think that's, yeah. what makes, that's what makes startups exciting. And this reason that I love working in every day, I'm meeting founders who are just super passionate about the areas that they're, that they're working in. Um, but drilling down to that core essence is often really tough. Um, and I think I love, I love that you've, you know, in, in different ways, a WhatsApp group is enough to drill down to that core essence of, of, of what people want. But if people already have like, you know, they've, they've already started building something. Do you recommend for them to say, put a pause on that and say, go back and just think yeah. about what's the core thing that you want to do? What's your, what do you have any tips for people there? 
that's such a hard, that's such a hard proposition. Like, cause we see that all the time. We see people that, you know, that are like 90% done and they're like, oh, you know, my, my previous agency was terrible and uh, we just need you to finish it off and we have a look at it. And the reason why it's never been finished is because it's a monstrosity. It's so big and there's no way for you to sort of launch it, build it and maintain it with any sort of reasonable amount of budget. So dealing, as you were saying before, dealing with people's incredible emotional energy when it comes to this is not only something that I want to do because I'm really passionate about this change, but also all my friends are looking at me and I've told them and promised them that I'm doing this. And if I fail, I'm going to look like a failure. And this, it's so hard to make the decision to say that the approach that I took was wrong. I need to start again. I need to do it from a slightly different approach. Um, but that's something that I think we, well, I, I try and take on as much as possible in terms of like that, that sort of, um, uh, that sort of honesty that people need. There's a lot of people in this industry that are, that are really brutal and honest. I think that's great because I think it needs it. Uh, and there's a lot of people I think in this industry that are very, um, very passive and don't really want to take on the responsibility of saying no to someone or telling someone they need to start again. Um, and we definitely, we definitely throw ourselves into the fire all the time. And my team knows that. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's, I think it's important to do. I think, you know, when we talk about MVPs, we've spoken about, you know, getting that initial product out, but then moving on to like actually making them investable. And so, you Mm -hmm. know, if we use the WhatsApp group, for example, moving on from the WhatsApp group to the product, like what's the, what are the steps in in between there to make that happen in your mind? Um, in terms of making, so from going like, a, how do we sort of, um, I guess, prove the value that was generated through something like a WhatsApp group enough to want to, um, generate investment. Yeah, exactly. Are you doing it on that alone or there, have you, have you, t- did you take further steps after that to, to make it in- investable, I guess? It, it honestly just depends on how much confidence we all have. Um, I think being, being investable pre-revenue is, is a really tough situation or a tough proposition for any founder. Um, most of the idea people look at funding as being something that's, that's glorified. Um, and that, you know, everyone in Silicon Valley is doing it. All I hear about is like people raising amazing amounts of money. I'm a unicorn all of a sudden it's so hard and it's not needed for everyone. Um, the earlier on that you receive investment, generally the more vulnerable you are, um, and the more control whoever invests has on your company. So I think if you are ever looking, and this this definitely does look back, by the way, but I think if you are <laughs> if you're definitely looking at um, at raising sort of money, um, like institutional investors, angels, it, it's all it's all stuff that happens as late as humanly possible. Relying on things like friends, family, coworkers, people that are in the industry that you know that are part of your network are much more likely to invest early on. Um, and then once you have that trust, then you can start to leverage some other parts of the industry as well. Um, and so when it comes to what are the next steps after validating something like a WhatsApp group, um, what we need to figure out, um, what we need to do to get to that next stage. You know, if it's an app that can be quite expensive, if you can't find a co-founder, if it's a trying to find a CTO or someone to come on board who can do the tech for you, um, it's about presenting the business case and what you can do for them, um, as well as where you see the business going and allowing them to focus actually on that tech. Um, there's so, there's so many different things and so many different, um, uh, I guess, um, priorities for early stage founders once they've even validated an idea that it's really hard with that specifics to, to advise. That makes sense. <laughs> totally. Um, we've got a question from Anand in the chat. He says, getting people to respond to surveys is very difficult. How can I make people respond yeah. to surveys and not treat it as spam? <clears throat> hard question. Any tips? So actually super easy question. Oh, really? <laughs> we, okay, um, great. Yeah. So there's a, there's this really weird sort of paradox between, um, people 
thinking that they have to constantly offer people uh, monetary incentives. But as soon as you offer monetary incentives, people just try and think about it when compared to their time. So just say you have a neighbor uh, and that neighbor uh, and your car's broken down and the neighbor's a mechanic and you say, hey, do you mind just coming around having a look at my car? They're much more likely to do that if you offer a bottle of wine and if you say something like, I'm happy to give you $5 to spend half an hour in my car. As soon as you mention money, that's when they start to switch off and say, well, it's not worth it anymore because I know my value. Um, and it's the same thing with a survey. If you set a post a survey into a Facebook group, the more that you sound like a business, the less likely you, you're willing to do it. And if you do things like, hi, you know, I'm, I'm starting this new company called Airbnb. It's going to be amazing. I'm giving people a $50 gift card. People instantly turn off. It needs to be a favor. It needs to be things like, hey, guys, I'm looking to try and make an impact. I can try and help people like you. I just need a bit of research. If you have 60 seconds, I'd love you to help out. Something like that, something really genuine is going to get you so many more responses than any sort of paid, any sort of, you know, approach like that. Yeah, totally. I think that's a, that's a great response. And I've never really considered that pe- when you offer money, people start to value it on how valuable their time is and actually might detract from people completing it at all. Um, that's, a, that's, a really great in- that's a really great insight. Before yeah. you mentioned... Um, a little bit about proving whether you're um, investable, I guess. And I think that what that comes down to in my mind is traction. You know, demonstrating traction as a pre-revenue business is, as you said, is really, really hard. But what does traction usually look like at a pre-revenue stage? Are there like metrics or things that I should be focusing on to help prove that out? Yeah, so like so, <laughs> so hard. Uh, like unless you have a platform where people can go on and pay for it, you can't give like answers about cost of, uh, cost of customer acquisition, conversion rates, lifetime value of customers. It's all sort of hearsay. And because of that, it's really hard to prove. So um, what we generally look for when it comes to proving traction or demonstrable traction is things like, um, have you validated the problem? And if you have, what sort of database have you built up over time through doing stuff like that? What type of distribution lists do you have? And a distribution list can be something like, you know, a Facebook group where you've talked to the owner of the group may have 40,000 people in it. Um, he said that he's happy for you to post about your business once you launch it. You all of a sudden have potentially, you know, 40,000 eyeballs and Facebook's algorithms won't ever let you get there. But th- that's sort of like in a way demonstrable traction because you have some sort of MOU from the, from the owner. And if you can do that with, you know, 10 to 100 different groups or industries or organizations or whatever, then you have access to potentially a lot of your customer. And the second part of that is uh, is partnerships. So if you can try and secure as many partnerships as you can to do some sort of like trade of value as opposed to trade of money, um, who specializes in your demographic that you're going after, then you also can start to look at them as not only providing value to your cohort, but also another audience you can start to advertise to. Um, and that's really powerful for us. Um, and we got a question from anonymous attendee. Um, <laughs> Would you, oh, hey. rec- would you recommend a, a waitlist early sign-up strategy as a method for de- validating demand for the product? Um, I, yeah, I definitely would. Um, but it's, I, I don't think that's necessarily conclusive of should I do it or should I not do it. I think it's a really great way um, to start to show early traction, um, but it's not necessarily, uh, you know, <laughs> the people, people, if, just because you launch it, just because it exists, just because your waitlist exists, doesn't mean people are going to find it. It doesn't mean you know, people are going to want to respond to it. So if you only get 50 people in this wait list, maybe you've posted in the wrong groups. Maybe you haven't really posted it at all. So it's a really hard way to justify whether or not something like that is worth it. But it is a great tool that you can use in addition to everything else to try and get an early distribution list. 
Yeah, great. And so what I'm really hearing is that pre-revenue, it's just hard. It ha- like do like proving out pre-revenue is is, is hard, um, but do, manageable. But then if you want to go and take on investment, we hear the stories from Silicon Valley. Um, it's really hard. And in our experience at Luna as well, we 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 know that for sure. So I guess moving on to like getting a product that's actually like from that like initial validation to actually sellable. I, what kind of what kind of work should I be doing there? Should it just be like this hack together thing that uh, is like just barely functioning with me doing all the manual work in the background, um, just to try and like start proving that out and proving that you're like a pre a good pre revenue investment? Um, you mean in terms of like actually having something live and that's working, but like in mm. what state is it actually working in? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Questionable um, states. <laughs> yeah, questionable states. Um, the, there's a really great um, podcast um, that uh, one of the early founders of Airbnb um, says where he starts to talk about do do things manual until you can until you can justify the saving of effort until it becomes automated. Um, we work with a lot of founders early on where um, they don't <laughs> not work with. Sorry, we speak to we don't work with them uh, where they say things like uh, like. I don't really like this is a billion dollar idea. I don't really want to work in it though. I don't really want to quit my day job. Just wanted to sit alongside and just make a shitload of money. I mean, that's never ever going to happen. Startups are really hard on purpose. Uh, and it's hard because if you make it, there's a, there's a massive sort of pot of gold at the end, but if you don't give a shit about the problem that you're trying to solve, then it's really not going to make a difference. Um, and in terms of like the, uh, the solution or the product that you create or you, you put into the marketplace, you're still you're not going to get a really good response from customers from people if what you're producing and what you're presenting isn't trustworthy and doesn't make sense or doesn't work. Um, you know, so putting out something that is clunky, convoluted, um, doesn't look good, isn't trustworthy. There is no way I'm putting my credit card into that, um, <laughs> and because of that, it's going to be really hard for you to try and validate or prove that sort of conversion rate or the cost of paying customer acquisition. Um, so it still needs to be trustworthy. It still needs to be presented in a way that. Um, that people want to actually use it, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that ma- that makes total sense. And because okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. and I, and I think um, you know, bringing in some of our experiences, even working with investors, um, it does matter whether mm-hmm. if you're going to an investor and you have a pitch deck, for example, that it's well designed. Not that mm-hmm. the design is everything in the be all and end all, but it creates this intrinsic trust. Um, in your in your for, for your customers that really or you know for for the investor in, in my example that really helps them just turn the page and say yeah okay that that looks good I can, I don't have to like think oh my god is putting my credit card details into here gonna leave me <laughs> leave me dry yeah yeah. <laughs> um, yeah we we see that all the time all the time too you know like the the minimum standard for what needs to exist is so much higher than it was you, you have a look at the first, uh, the first uh, version of Spotify, the first version of Dropbox, the first version of um, Instagram and Facebook, and they look terrible. And there's so many people that say, this is where they started. This is what an MVP looks like. You should just do this. And that is something that doesn't really work anymore. It, the, the bar has risen from an investment standpoint where they see hundreds of different decks a day and they make a decision on your startup, not necessarily even you know, on the, the content and the essay that you wrote, but within the first 10 seconds. Um, and part of that's visual and part of that's uh, sort of scanning for the right keywords and that type of thing. So the bar's definitely risen, um, but it doesn't mean it's unmanageable. So you do need to pay attention to the way that you're perceived in the market. Yeah, totally. And that comes down to thoughtful 
design and you know the more the more things that you want to include in that the just more expensive and the harder it's going to be um especially because the bar is so high so it like drills back to what we were talking about before which is like just drilling down to the core essence of what needs to be there and yep. putting that out there and, and making sure that that's that's working well um we when we're talking about um when we're talking about like we've spoken about investable mvps but i want to hear your take on like um whether a founder also needs to be investable, investable. <laughs> and what do you, what do you, what are your thoughts on that point? A founder one, <clears throat> sorry, a founder 100% needs to be investable. Um, <laughs> if the founder's not investable, there's no point, right? Like uh, I had this example, it was ages ago, um, where they said something like, you can give a great idea to a terrible founder and it will probably go nowhere, but you can give a terrible idea to a great founder um, and they'll find a way to make it a success. Uh, and that's so true. And I think from, um, an early stage pre-revenue ideation sort of process, most of the funds that you raise are going to be with friends, family, co-workers, people in your immediate network. They're not going to invest necessarily in the idea. They're going to put up two, three, five, ten 10K on you as a person, on their ability to trust the fact that they've known you their whole life and that you are the person probably to do this because you've done really great things before. It's all about you as a founder. And then when you start to look at external investors, they're going to be looking exactly the same thing. Do you have partnerships? Do you have distribution lists? Have you validated the, um, the problem you've got? Um, do you seem like a trustworthy person? Is this a relationship that I really want to have with this particular person for the next 10 years? Um, it matters an incredible amount. So you need to not only sort of have an idea that that's really great because that's not even half the problem. It's about trying to educate yourself, um, prove to the world that you are the one in 100 that's going to succeed where almost everyone else has failed. Um, I love that. I think it's so important. And, um, it was, it was a, it was a leading question cause I totally agree as well. <laughs> um, nice. so I think something that, something that you um, mentioned there, which i I think is interesting is like, do I have partnerships that can help prove that, you know, I'm, I, I've built trust in myself and also the product that I'm using. Do you have any tips on like, first, like just defining what a, what in your mind a those kind of partnerships are, especially at that earlier stage um, and any tips for developing those? Yeah, sure. So um, to, to understand what a partnership is and, and the ones that you should be going for, you need to really look at the audience or the consumers or the customers or the demographics of those customers that you're trying to build as part of your startup. <clears throat> so if you are trying to build a, uh, like a fitness app, you've obviously got people who are um, excited or motivated or want to do something within fitness. So if you start to look at all the other supporting industries that also look at that type of customer, things like selling protein powder, selling online courses, doing yoga classes, um, selling weights, gym memberships, all that sort of stuff. They're all people that service that exact same customer. That's not you. And as long as you're not directly competing with those people, there's a way for you to offer them value to their customers. And then in exchange, they can offer value to your customers. So if you have some sort of fitness product um, or something like that, um, then you may want to partner with a gym because you're complimentary for some perspective and they could give potentially 10% off to everyone who's a member of, of your app. And then in exchange, um, you could sort of uh, respond and, and give some sort of value back. And um, that deal could be executed through them sending an email to their entire database, telling them about your product and you could do exactly the same thing. Um, and so there is that mutual exchange of value um, rather than sort of commercial, um, like I'll pay you for a post because that's basically advertising that sort of partnership. <laughs> that's cheating. <laughs> totally. There needs to be a, a mutual exchange um, that's beneficial yep. to both parties to, to, to start to 
develop that out. I, we got an interesting question um, from anonymous attendee. How long would you let an MVP run before deciding it's worth pursuing it or taking it to the next level or time to let go of? Like, do you have a timeline for that? Or are you looking just for indication more? Um, I think it really depends. Um, the the biggest I've seen this before, but the biggest indicator um, of whether or not a startup will be successful is timing. Um, and it's really, really hard to know whether or not you've got a great idea with a great team, with a great whatever, but you've launching five years too late or five years too early. So because time's important, it's really hard to say if I squeeze that into right now, whether or not right now is the time to make this happen when in two, three years, when the industry's caught up, maybe that's a better time. Um, but uh, I, I would probably say if you've, if, you've, if you've gone to the effort of validating the product, you've got about 200 surveys, you've spoken to a lot of people um, and things seem quite positive. You've gone to the step of creating some sort of MVP that you can bring people into, you can show them, you can do whatever you need to do. And then within the next six months, if you don't have, and you're putting in the effort, and if you don't have 10 partnerships and maybe distribution lists of around 100,000 people, which should be pretty easy to get in a couple of weeks, then either you're not passionate about it, you just don't have time for it, or maybe the industry is not responding to that problem. And in all of those cases, it's probably a good idea just to maybe shelve it for a bit and then come back when you're a little bit more excited about it. <laughs> um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great tip. I, we have an interesting question from um, Zafer who says he's with Hyper right now. And uh, his question is about like choosing a location to launch. Um, so for Zafer's example, he's in Dubai and um, his app is dedicated to university students, but he's not sure where to launch. And so do you have any tip or thoughts on, you know, you're based all around, you've got all around the world, Cluj Napoca, which is one of my favorite towns in Romania. In Romania, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, UK here. Um, do you have any thoughts on like location and like how to like select your location? Yeah, or- for sure. So um, I, I always believe this. I've heard this so many times. You should launch where you are. Um, and if your customers aren't where you are, move to where they are um, because you're not going to get um, while your startup's small, you're never ever going to have the time that you have right now to spend the time with them, to speak to them, to work through their problems, to find out whether or not there's a better way to do what you're doing at the moment. Um, and this is really, I guess, backed up by the Airbnb guys. Um, they they sort of they've launched three times, I believe. And when they um, when they spoke to someone or advisor about their their product, and they realized that all of their customers, I think, were over in New York, and they weren't. The first advice was get to New York, like you have to go there. Um, and the success of their product was based on them meeting the hosts, taking photos, putting up proper profiles, spending the time and effort with them, really understanding the problem. That is the reason why that was successful. And I think with startups, um, you can't, and yeah. And so for, for me, you have to like, uh, stay up at, for like 8 PM every single night talking to the UK. There's no way I can possibly get a real understanding of what it's like to be there boots on the ground, understanding the culture, understanding the way that the system works, the way the businesses work, the way the communication works. It's so hard for me to really understand it if I'm not physically there. So if you had to choose somewhere, launch where you are. Um, if it doesn't work there, find where it does uh, or, or try and find someone who's got boots on the ground there to help you. Yeah, I think that that's that's great advice because you'll have no better int- intimate knowledge of the of a, of a place than the place that you're you're living or you currently are. Um, yeah. Even 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 hyper localized, and I think you know when we're talking about Australia, if we use Australia as an example, Melbourne. Before, if you're living in Melbourne, choose Melbourne before you're choosing Sydney. Um, yep. And you know, just localizing as much as possible to your core knowledge area to give yourself the best head start, right? 
Yeah, and Melbourne's way better than Sydney, so uh, I, can, I can understand that. <laughs> yeah, we're creating we're creating a bit of a a, a, a riff now. It's fine, you know, no, no worries. Um, My team in Sydney are going to hate me after this, so don't worry. About <laughs> it. Honestly, I'm just going to send them clips of this exact talk. <laughs> um, I think it, talking about all this like investable investable MVP stuff um, is really important, but there's also another side of the coin where there's founders who don't want to raise money bootstrap founders. Um, do you have any tips for founders who are looking to launch a bootstrap business and like ways that they could go about doing that or self-funding it, I guess? Yeah, for sure. So I, <laughs> I just saw uh, I'm bad from Sydney come up from the chat. So that was really distracting. I was starting to jump in. Um, uh, yeah. So I said before, I think that, um, uh, I think the idea of raising capital has been uh, romanticized so much in the industry. And it, if you don't need it, don't do it. Because very early on, you're trading what, like 20, 30, 40% of your business for capital that might even just get you to launch, maybe not even ahead of that. Um, and so unless you can really spend the effort and time justifying your value and getting the right valuation, which for us pre-rev should be 20% for about 200K, between 100 and 200K. Um, if you're sitting within that, that's a really good spot. But if you're not, then it's really hard to prove that. Um, so if you, uh, an evaluation of your business obviously increases the further that you go. So if you're pre-rev with a prototype that's not live, that can't take customers, that's designed only, your value is very different to once you've launched and you can demonstrate cost of customer acquisition, lifetime value, feedback, all that sort of stuff. So, um, try and get yourself live as quickly as humanly possible. If you don't have external funding, um, or even if you are, to be honest, um, because that's going to be the best way for you to generate revenue or enough revenue, at least for you to be somewhat sustainable. Mm. Um, if you are sustainable, if you have a business, if you, if the timing window of what you're trying to do doesn't rest on you exploding and being the market dominant player within the next 12 months and time is on your side, then you can sustainably build a company that doesn't require any external investment. You keep hundred percent of it. You rely on profits and you reinvest those. That is a, definitely a legitimate way to start a startup. I think it's totally true. And it's not only like ad advice for those listening. It's not only advice from Sasha. I think we're seeing those signals from the US um, with uh, these companies that never become profitable if we talk about the Ubers and the WeWorks of the world. And now there's, now there's yeah. a bit of a, um, uh, it's like a little bit of a cautionary tale, right? And it's like, if you, the more you can do to prove out that you're a safer bet. Um, so that's by revenue, um, to buy customers, um, then you can start to then you can start to actually have better chances, getting better valuations, raising more capital, um, and doing that for as long as possible is ideal. So we have a local <clears> example, Build Kite, for example. They they were running for six, seven, seven years, and they just raised a mega round. Um, mm. you, I think you know you can go on Smart Company or whatever to check out what's happened. But they bootstrapped and were very profitable, and they decided, hey, okay, now's the time that we want to um, dominate the world we're going to need some capital to do it. And that was the perfect time for them, you know? So delaying that as much as possible and doing as much as you can to get to those stages is just beneficial for you overall. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, the team that we used to be part of actually used Bill Kite. So I know what that was like as well. And, um, and yeah, we've seen that. Whether that's an exit strategy for people just to sell 100% of it and keep a little bit, um, that's not how 100% works. Um, <laughs> or whether or not they've been doing it for like six years, there's enough value there. So they just want to sell half of it um, just to get a bit of cash in the door so they never have to worry about it and then just focus on doing exactly what they're doing before. Um, but you're more powerful later on um, than you are. So if you can delay it, then do. Um, yeah, I totally agree. And Sash, we're about to 
wrap up. Let's be, this hour has flown by for me. I'm not sure how you're feeling, but um, just, just so before we wrap up, um, recommended resources for founders to get their head around, like uh, thinking about building investable MVPs. MV. Yeah, so I mean, look, I'd be remiss if I didn't say uh, Hyper is the best way to, <laughs> to understand whether or not your idea is worth pursuing and building an MVP. But uh, if you had to do some research before then, um, really get involved with the industry is probably the biggest advice that I could say. There are so many things uh, within the industry that can support you from free webinars to pitch nights to newsletters to podcasts to um, people that are just generally doing what you want to do. You can contact them on LinkedIn and just ask. Um, there's, uh, a lot of books that are available as well. Art of the Start is my favorite, uh, 2.0 that is, uh, with Guy Kawasaki, Oof. uh, and, uh, and also the Lean Startup. Um, but there's so much that you can do to educate yourself and to really understand what you need to be doing, um, within the industry and a really great ecosystem specifically within Melbourne, uh, sorry, Victoria and New South Wales. But I know there's incredible ones, obviously in London, Dubai, um, and, uh, also Eastern Europe as well. So, um, leverage as many resources as you possibly can within the industry um, to give yourself confidence and, and get started when you're as confident as you need to be to move forward. There's no shortage of um, founders sharing their yeah. um, their stories or their advice online. Um, sometimes it's a marketing tool for them and they do it freely and openly. Um, and I think it's important to um, leverage those, like as you said, because there's so much available and just drilling down and starting to figure out, okay, what do I actually need to know and how am I going to do it? But I think um, the resources you mentioned are a great place to start. And so before we wrap up, Sasha, what's the best way for people to get in touch? So uh, probably just jumping onto our website. So that's hyperhq.com. Um, or alternatively, if you want to speak to me or ask me any questions specifically, you can go through there uh, or on my Instagram. Uh, I have a, a profile called I am Sasha Reed. Um, that I'm starting and I'm going to try and do a lot of Q and A's and a lot of deep dives into the, the, many, the many founders that I've worked with over the last five years, just uncovering what the problem was, how we solved it, um, what would have gone wrong and what went right. Um, so I'm really starting to put a lot of time into that over the next, uh, hopefully Christmas break. So I'm very excited. Nice, nice, nice little holiday activity. Uh <laughs> Always busy, never free. <laughs> um, awesome, Sasha. Thanks so much for joining us. And um, on our next control end, we're actually getting to know um, tax. So if you are interested for anyone that's here, you'll see that up there. But Sash, in the meantime, thanks so much. And we'll definitely chat soon. No worries, mate. All right. See you later. Bye, everyone. See you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of How to Start a Startup brought to you by Hyper. Do you have a product or business idea, but don't know where to start? Visit us at hyperhq.com and book a free confidential session with a hyper business mentor to discuss your idea and how to make it a reality. We'd love to talk. And that's all for this week. See you next time.